1: Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, discuss it, and uh, put it out there for the world to enjoy or not as they prefer. We don't ask like for the, much here.
2: Our, our expectations are not high.
1: <laughs> well, our expectations for ourselves are high, I think, but the... Uh,
2: the world at large Uh,
1: you know we 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 (laughs) tend to be more lenient on other people that's a character flaw we have i guess i don't know
2: we we do and that's yeah um hold on hector sorry uh yeah the puppy's been making a lot of appearances lately yeah he is (laughs) he he's been I don't know, extra hectory lately. I don't.
1: Yeah. How old is he now? What? Four months? Five months?
2: Four months and almost 45 pounds.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> he's, he's quite the animal. Um, even when I was last in, he was quite large for his age. So uh, we're going to, and that was, when was that? That was around spring break?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. But he's oh. he's going to be quite the quite the large dog.
2: And he's not a bad dog. He's just like busy. Right. And so, you know, we were talking about it. It's like having another kid because I, I noticed that last week while we were recording, he actually chewed like the entire belt off of my apron. Yes, I own an apron. It was a gift. Um, don't let that uh, destroy my street cred. Uh, but
1: anyway, I, I own, which- I own two aprons. They, I forgot <laughs> to return them from a place of employment. Um, but they're high quality. So I do use them sometimes when I grill to keep charcoal off the front of my shirts.
2: Well, this one's like pretty like homemaker apron. So yeah. Um, which we all know that that's, just not one of the areas that I excel in. So, but he had chewed it up and I'm like, Oh goodness. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's teething and like just really happy about everything in the world. So, okay. I, I've discovered that I'm like, I'm a dog person, absolutely, but I'm not a puppy person. so where a lot of people are just the opposite. give them the cute puppy, and I, I'm like, give me a dog, settled down, ready to just go to work. yeah, <laughs> and yeah. so I'm ready for him to grow up is what I'm saying <laughs> i I
1: understand that now um but that being said, <laughs> no one's here to hear about your dog. I mean, what? maybe, maybe someone is
2: what? Everybody loves Hector. Okay. But (laughs) anyway, yeah. For more Hector news, follow
1: Emily on Facebook.
2: (laughs) Plenty of Hector pictures. But anyway, uh, yeah, we're, we're finishing up. Uh, I think we might get through this, this episode, maybe next episode. Uh, We're in second Samuel 23. Uh, We kind of did a little bit of intro last time, how these are considered to be David's last words or the last words of David. Typically the heading that's there. So, we're looking just at verses one through seven because we looked at eight through the rest of the chapter when we were working with that chiasm. Because this is a chiasm for anyone who has forgotten those last four chapters. And after David's last words, we have the uh, a record of his of his mighty men and their ranks and how they were arranged. And we talked about all that. And so we are getting to that center. And so, um like I said, we're just going to stick with these and we're going to talk about the chiastic structure and all of that fun stuff. But um, this does pose a bit of a problem. We mentioned it briefly, but it's good to go back over it again, that David's last words here in second Samuel are totally different than David's last words in first Kings, because Mm. in first Kings, you know, he talks to his son Solomon, he's like you're going to kill this guy and you're going to kill that guy and I mean, they're not a psalm of praise.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, I guess it would be uh it would look better if your if your last official words were a psalm <laughs> of praise and not a hit list. <laughs> right. You know, that's which is basically what he gave to Solomon on his way
2: out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're going to get into that because it, you know, it's it's very troubling and again, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, one book. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, we talked about this, the divisions that we have are because that's the standard length of a scroll, but we do have some traditions where the first two chapters of 1st Kings are included with 2nd Samuel. So, um, you know, they they do flow together, and these probably are, like you said, that last official word, and that David really is, he's operating here as not just a father talking to his son for the last time or a king who is giving you know the final instructions to his predecessor um, not predecessor but his antecedent I guess um, hmm. he, he's uh, he's following the um, his heir his heir that that's a good word for? descendant yeah. Uh, yeah the guy who's going to take over for him okay yes. so <laughs> successor I, successor that those are good. Until we own a, a source or two, <laughs> uh, but anyway, the uh, the this is him operating as that prophet and as the priest. And I sometimes think we forget that David was a priest, and uh, which is actually a really important point when we get to Jesus being a prophet, priest, and king. And you know, David did encompass that role. <clears throat> so you have to really look at which David are you talking about. And, you know, which hat is he wearing in this moment? And, um, you know, in the words that he uses as he opens this psalm, he, he tells us very clearly, he says, this is the oracle of David. This is a man raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now, to be a psalmist, and I think we need to point this out, if you were a psalmist, you weren't just somebody writing songs, you were operating typically in a prophetic role. Because most of the psalms are not just pretty music; they're actually um, that they, they have a prophetic element to them. Because they're either revealing a spiritual truth about an event that has happened, or they're looking forward to what will happen, typically in the advent of the, of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, David's telling us this is this is. What I'm saying, this is the office I'm occupying. So this is the oracle, and oracle, I think, is one of those words that we we think we know, mm-hmm. but sometimes it's yeah. We, we have this tendency. Go ahead. Well,
1: yeah, no, you you talked you you and I talked about we were going to discuss what the word actually meant because that is one of that's kind of one of our pet peeves is there the church has a tendency to to use words that they don't fully understand what they mean or they assign some kind of really hyper spiritual definition to it and wind up ruining the def- the meanings of them. Um, I know that sounds kind of mean, but it's true. There's, there's a, there's a meme from parks and rec where Andy Dwyer is in a meeting and he, he says, I S I really don't know what we're talking about, but at this point I think we're, t- I'm af- I'm afraid we're too far along to ask. <laughs> And I feel like that was a good portion of a lot of churches I've been in, where there, we these phrases just get kicked around and and passed around with no real meaning. And 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 you and I talked about the, this a little bit with the word grace. I mean, mm-hmm. where that word has lost any practical meaning because yeah. we we see it as not as something we do, but as like a, a commodity that God owns. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It's, it goes from being an, an action to being this verb, which then gets put into the scarcity market when you go into certain systematics like Calvinism. Um, but to be gracious to someone or to give someone grace is, is actually a, it was a common word or I guess charis mm-hmm. would have been the word that Paul would have used. Mm-hmm. Um, nice Greek skills there. <laughs> hey, I uh, remembered a word uh, that wasn't English. <laughs> as you can see earlier, I remember lots of English words, but that's beside the point. But when Paul wrote what the letters to the churches, he was writing to them in a language he could understand. And I feel mm-hmm. like too often when we look at certain words in the Bible, we, we look at them as though while the person was writing, God like was like, oh, no one, there's no word for what I need to do here. So he like writes it down, gives a, di- a dictionary definition to someone, sends it down in a lexicon and says, here, invent this word to use. <laughs> and that's not how the Bible was written. Um, it, right. it was written in a culture with a language that was already in use. And so it will- that's, ju- that's just one of the examples that, that I have. I mean, it, but that, that's a, a really simple one, you know, at, and it's always good to take the, you know, when, you, when you're, especially when you're using words that are kind of seem a little, I mean, for lack of a better term, worn out by the church in your community.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As
1: you're studying, take them out of the verse you're studying and see if that word has a definition in any other context. And now, exactly. I, granted, I know that's kind of hard to do with things like righteousness or sanctification or, <laughs> or whatnot. Right. But still, look up what those words actually mean when you're studying, because we, I mean, we kind of rob ourselves of, of a lot of meaning when we don't investigate those things. Um, you know, another another good example is, um, "O come, thou fount of every blessing." The, I mean, mm-hmm. I realize this isn't this is not in the Bible; it's a hymn. But the second verse starts with, "Here I raise my Ebenezer." Right. What does that mean to anyone? Unless you look that up to find out. It's a
2: Christmas carol. That's the mean guy. who takes all the money.
1: Yeah. Why why would you raise Ebenezer? He's going to steal everyone's cash. Now, uh, be visited by ghosts and all that business. Well,
2: that could be prophetic. But but go ahead. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Anyway,
1: but if you look it up, it's actually a nice, beautiful, poetic statement about raising a monument to God and saying that whenever you sing this song you're putting this up as a way to remember all the things God has done for you and generations past and all he's promised to do it. And it's, it's this succinct poetic statement. And we've, we've got Mm -hmm. to get better. Like I mentioned a couple episodes ago about, we've got to get better at taking these things that are supposed to help us remember God's truth and reflect on it and stop accepting them as a whole truth. That's so dense that we can't penetrate it because it's Mm -hmm. wrapped up in, in language that we don't understand. So yeah that's, and <laughs> that's a, a big pet peeve of mine you might have noticed after <laughs> what, seven minutes or so of ranting
2: well, I, I think you know it's just responsible. you know if you're going to study the Bible, be responsible because too many people will study the Bible, get what they want out of it, and move on. Mm-hmm. And so if you actually know the words, now we can we can begin to discuss <clears throat> excuse me how to um how to use them, what they mean, what the symbolism, like, like you were saying. And so, that helps us understand the text, and that helps us come to a better grip of the truth. And you know, it's just a good thing to do, and a lot of times, it's as simple as putting into Google the word mm-hmm. and then definition. Yeah. And now, I say that, and we're going to talk about how this is not one of those words. <laughs> um, because oracle, yeah, oracle is, uh, it's a borrowed word. It, it's, we, we hear it uh, probably most frequently when we're talking about the oracle of Delphi, which is where Apollo had his, his temple and uh, this woman would be there and she would sit above this fissure in the earth and she would get high off the fumes. And at least this is the, the most popular theory. And she would speak. And honestly, she would speak gibberish, and she was known as the, the mantis. And so, let see if I got this right. It's been a while since I studied this. Um, didn't plan to go here, but it seems a good way. So, that she, there was her, she would speak gibberish, and then the priest would then interpret what was being said. And so, they were the, prophet, the prophets that would um, give the message and so, when we talk about an oracle, we kind of have this idea in mind that's been influenced by by Greek culture and you know movies like three hundred and um which was really disturbing and really effective, i think, to to sum up how creepy it was because the other thing we need to remember in the, <clears throat> with that oracle was it was supposed to be inspired by a python spirit, which is talking about an axe, so um you can get down some really crazy rabbit holes with this word. Mm-hmm. So, what we have to do is we need to look at where the word appears, like you were saying, in the Bible. Um, the word is ne- uh, num and it appears 376 times, but only certain times that this is used is going to help us. So usually when I'm tracking down a meaning of the word, I'm just going to walk people through the process because a lot of people don't know how to do this. And um, this is what I have found has been the most helpful. So first, whenever you have a word that you don't know, you want to look and see how it's used in that book, in the same writing, because you've got to remember different books are written at different times. And uh, since language is fluid and it's always evolving, You want to try to get as close to that time period as when the writer of the book is using it. So I start in the same book. And so that's where I I try to look for it. But the problem is we don't find it again, Um, not within 2 Samuel. And so since I don't have the same book, I look in other books that the writer may have have written with David, or we have um, him using it in a psalm. So the writer of Samuel is not the writer of, it's not the person who used this word. David's the one who used this word. So now I can look at Psalms. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's allergy season here. We got cedar like crazy. Mm-hmm. And yeah.
1: cedar, cedar is my enemy.
2: Yeah, it hates us. So, um, but we're dealing with also another piece of the book of Samuel that's not original to Samuel. And so, other uses, to, uh, other uses in Samuel are only moderately help- helpful. I guess, I'm sorry, there are some other uses. I just forgot to write them down. And so, what we have that makes this even more complicated is this particular psalm is really, really old. I mean, older than Samuel, older than the book of Kings, and older than even the rest of this four chapter section. And so, um, Well, we've got some psalms that date to roughly the same time period. If you remember when we went through chapter 22, we talked about how there's those differences between uh, uh, 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18. Mm -hmm. Because even though they're the same psalm, Psalm 18, the the language was updated and it was written in a more quote-unquote modern style in relativity to that particular psalm to help people understand it. And it's not written in an antiquated language that people didn't get. Maybe uh, your come thou fount of every blessing is a good example of that, where people today don't know what an Ebenezer is. So, it's the same thing. And unless you stop and define your terms, then you wouldn't know what you were singing. So, that's what the writers and the editors of the psalm did. They they updated the language. And... um, so even though the Psalm is attributed to David and may have been from the same time period as Second Samuel 23, again only moderately helpful. So we have to um, have to really make sure that our strategy for finding these definitions is something that does give us correct information. So this is where things get weird, because to find another piece of the Bible that's about the same time, we have to go to Numbers 30, uh, 24, verses 3 through 4. And this is a really weird passage to bring up in relationship to David, because it's Balaam, and it says, the oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eyes eye opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God who sees the vision of the almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. So you've got kind of a similar setup here that you find in um, 2 Samuel 23, because the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of a man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. So you've got this the, these uh, lines that the are very parallel with the, the son, the office, the function of, of the identity of who this person is. And so, it is a very formulaic, prophetic announcement. It's not just a song, it's a prophetic announcement. And so, if you know the story of, um, of Balaam, uh, real quick, we'll give you the Reader's Digest version. You know, basically, the king of Moab uh, wanted to hire Balaam to curse Israel. And the first time that uh, Balak sent—that's the king of Moab—Balak uh, sends messengers. Um, God told Balaam not to go. And the second time uh, he sends messengers, Balaam, God told Balaam, "You can go, but only do what I tell you to do."
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And on the way, Balaam's donkey talks—you know it talks to him while they're going on the path. And uh, because he's obstructed by the angel of the Lord, so when he arrives before Balak. There's preparations that are made, and Balaam goes, goes to the heights um, to receive a word from, from God. There's sacrifices and altars built, and you know, there's a lot of detail that we aren't going into. But verse 5 says this, And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth. So that's the, what the first oracle of Balaam was. It's a word the Lord put in Balaam's mouth. It's not something that Balaam wants to hear, or Balak wants to hear. And, you know, Balaam tries again. The third time, Balaam accepts that, that God is not going to um, curse Israel. He's going to bless Israel. And he just foregoes all the sacrifices and rituals that they had done before. And he doesn't go to the height. He just sits his face towards the wilderness. And this time, God doesn't put a word in his mouth. Um, it says the Spirit of God came upon him. And it's at this point, he introduces his, um, his oracle with those words that sound like David's introduction here. Mm-hmm. And so, and Balak, is, you know, he's furious with, with what Balaam has to say, and he reminds Balaam, you know, uh, Balaam reminds Balak, I can only say what God allows me to say, I can't say any more, and Balaam begins to prophesy again. And that time, also, he uses the same, I mean, word-for-word introduction, uh, and and so, definitely, we've got this formula, a formulaic introduction that, that really expresses the idea that what follows is a word from God. There's no doubt that this is something God wanted said. The, the psalmist, uh, whether it's Balaam or David, they're not saying what they want to say, they're saying exactly what God wants to them to say. And Balaam really helps us understand that this is not something you can fight, you have to submit to this divine message and be the conduit for that message and that message alone. And so, it it does actually help, even though it seems like a really weird story to refer back to when we're talking about David. And so, and of course, we know later, uh, it's in Numbers 31, 16, that Balaam actually helped formulate a plan to destroy the the Israelites, Mm -hmm. and it was for that reason that Balaam's killed by Moses and Finchas the son of Eleazar. And so, I, I know this is like the really long way around to give a definition of a single word, but we see how when we have this word oracle used, particularly this time period, How significant it is. This means you need to be paying attention because this is God's word. Mm -hmm. There's no human influence. And, you know, even if the devious heart's involved, they can't deviate from the message, uh, you know, even if they want to, and no amount of bargaining, because there's times when God will listen to people, he'll bargain with people. We see that with uh Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, but if we um look real close at Numbers and Balaam as an example of how to read the word of Oracle, it becomes very clear that, um, you know, it is close to the date of psalms of the psalm, and it's the most complete narrative in which the word is used by a human, uh, as far as Balaam uh, story goes. Now, Because um, we have it 376 times, we can look at the exceptions and how it is generally used. And there is only used, um, wow, I am looking, this is crazy because, oh, there it is. I left a number out of my math. So I was able to do math in my head real quick. So 376 times it's, it's used. 372 times it's used directly of a pronouncement by, uh, by God, sometimes even without acknowledging a prophet or some kind of intermediary. It, it, this is what God has said. Uh, there's only four times that it's used by a person in regards to human beings. And, and the reason why you don't see it <clears throat> so often in your Bible, because if you go through the English Bible and you're looking for oracle, you're not going to find it very often it's usually translated as declared or says, it, it, um not something, you know, Thus, it's a thus saith the Lord kind of thing. It's not, it doesn't say oracle. And part of that is because we do have that word oracle tied so closely in our modern consciousness to Delphi. So, if you bring up this word, you might accidentally get misled because We're thinking of the wrong thing. We aren't thinking of the God of Israel. We're thinking of a Greek god, and so sometimes translators do take into account that baggage that certain words can bring, so that they can help us, you know, not pick it up and not put it into the text. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's kind of interesting when you think about it that way. Now, the other time we find it used is Psalms thirty, verse one. And it says, the words of Hagar, the son of Jacob, the oracle. Now, we have no idea who this guy is. And I mean, there's like, he, he shows up in Psalms 30, I'm sorry, Proverbs 30. Um, he doesn't show up anywhere else. Uh, he offers this kind of unusual oracle, and then he just disappears from the text. Now, what's interesting to me about this is that um, this chapter is the start of an epilogue to Proverbs it, where the rest of the book has been written probably by Solomon. That's our best guess. But then 30 and 31 are kind of, um, you know, they're just additions by other writers to the end of the book. Very much like what we have here in Second Samuel with these last four chapters. Mm-hmm. So, that that's kind of interesting to me that you kind of have that, um, kind of have that, that similarity. The final time we um, find it used is in Psalm 36.1, which is either a Psalm of David, which we've talked about that before. That can mean that David either wrote the Psalm or it was written for him or at David's command by a choir master. But we do have that Davidic connection. And it's used in almost an allegorical way. It's not used in the same manner. Um, it's um, the, the speaker here is transgression. Like transgression is actually talking and it's almost named. Uh, transgression functions as a name of almost a spiritual force. And the psalm begins as kind of this peek into the thoughts and feelings that, of evildoers and what motivates them and how they justify uh, their, their actions. So it is the, the oracle of transgression. And so. We can kind of kick Psalm thirty six out as irrelevant and kind of unhelpful. Um, Psalm, Proverbs thirty has a it, if it had a a backstory or context, it might be a little helpful, more helpful than what it is. Uh, we do have that hint at the formulaic writing, but again, only moderately um, helpful because there's not a lot to work with. But By taking it back to Numbers and looking at the fact that they are from about the same time period, we've got almost, I mean, such close parallels in those opening lines. And we can see what David is trying to express. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you get that without that connection back to Balaam. And this is the reason why it's so important to look for parallels and look for the way that language is repeated or used repetitively in scripture. And so, if if you see where it's used, and I, I've talked about this before, but, you know, there's this rabbinic principle where you don't apply a law unless you have two narrative examples of how that law is applied. And so, this isn't quite the same thing, but I do like the idea of when you find that that narrative that that gives you an example, you need to grab hold of it and you need to really see what you can mine from it because that, for me... Is where the principles actually make the most sense, and I know how to grab hold of them better, because now I have a concrete example of how it is applied, either correctly or incorrectly. And another thing to remember is just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's the way it's supposed to be. And sometimes God does actually give us some really um, terrifying examples of misapplication of his word. So. all of that to say, David's not speaking from experience uh, or what he's witnessed. Um, he, he's as the physical realm. He is even the spiritual realm. He, he is quoting God's own words here. He, he is saying exactly what God wants him to say. And David really makes it clear in verse two. He says, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Just you, there's no way to mistake what he's saying. And even if you don't know the formula, you don't know the significance of that first verse, David spells it out because he does not want you to miss what he's going to say. You need to be paying attention. This is God speaking, not David. Verse 3a, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. So David, once again, is that reaffirmation that, that he is speaking on the behalf of God. 3b says, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, so Zamora says, "In other words, the king who fears God would rule, uh, who fears God would rule over the people righteously in the same way the righteous God would rule over the people." So David's saying to you, if you fear God, you're going to do it right," is basically what's going on here? You, and the implication, of course, is if you don't fear God, then you're going to do it wrong. And we're going to see example after example of that when we get to kings. So verse four. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless day. Like rain he makes grass, grass sprout forth from the earth. So the king described here is not David. And he's not talking about his own reign. Um, on this point, there's like absolutely no contention. Uh, the Jewish writers don't think David is talking about himself. The Christian commentators don't think he's talking about himself. The, the literary academic elite don't think David's talking about themselves. Everyone says, David is talking about a couple of different things, possibly a couple of different things. So the Talmudists say he's talking about God. Mm -hmm. David's speaking on God's behalf, so now he's talking about God. Um, We know that God brings the right the light. God brings the rain. This is what he does. He laid that out in Deuteronomy. Um, So that makes sense. The Targum of Jonathan, uh, which is really uh, it's an Aramaic commentary and uh, kind of paraphrase the Old Testament or the Tanakh, uh, he actually says, this is the coming Messiah. This is the Messiah who is going to reign over the earth. And now we as Christians, we immediately go, well, this is Jesus. I mean, of course it's Jesus. uh, But we got to remember that uh, at this point in time, uh, both with Jonathan and with with Jonathan, the Christianity probably hadn't even been um, formulated yet. Or the dating on that's kind of hazy, but we, it probably predates Christianity. The Talmud, they're fighting against Christianity. But the thing is, we can actually affirm what both Jewish sources say, because we know Jesus is God. We know Jesus is that Messiah. So, we can go, you're absolutely right. 100%. This is who who is um, being spoken of here. We just happen to know the person. So, um, then... David tells us that in this kingdom where the Messiah rules, in the kingdom of God, all the abundance will be given, uh, the sun to warm the earth and the rain to, to bring the crops. You've got to have both. He brings them in perfect balance. And, you know, within this creation under the reign of the creator, this is, this is how it has to be. I mean, it's like you can't have the creator actually involved in creation without creation being what it's supposed to be. And so, Jesus even uses this um, information to confirm his identity. That's in John 8, 12. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, I will, but will have the light of life. So, D- Jesus isn't using the exact same words, but it's the same theme. It's that idea that being with him brings light. It brings life. And so, in, verse, uh, in John 9, 5, he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So. David is acknowledging something crazy here because we know about David. David's got, you know, he's not the most humble man on earth. I think we should have picked up on that by now. He has his tendency to be just a little too sure of himself. But in this moment, he's acknowledging this huge truth, which is it's not about him. It's never been about David. The, the kingdom, the throne... Everything David's gone through, it's just a means to an end. He had the privilege of participating in God's ultimate design. He had the honor of being a key piece in, in this grand plan, but he, is, it, he was never the end. He was not the final part of God's plan. He's not what God was building to. He's just one step along the way, and his last words to the nation Their comfort and their hope, the kingdom will not end with his death. The people should not fear or mourn the loss of of the Messiah. Instead, they should be anticipating the loss of the final Messiah, the Messiah Jesus Christ. And yes, things were good under David's rule, but David did not bring them um, the sun and the rain. I mean, in fact, the the story before this, we had just had a drought Mm -hmm. because of what had happened with the Gibeonites. So, David's saying, there's going to be someone coming who's going to be a better king than I ever could have been. So, this is why my death isn't devastating to the kingdom. It doesn't mean Israel's going to end. And so, we, we need to remember this. I mean, plagues, we're going to have plagues back in, you know, in the last chapter. Um, so, why does David have such certainty of this? He says, this in verse 8, he says, for does not my house stand with God. David's saying, you know, no matter what, we're on God's side. Um, he says, for He has made me with made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will He not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? So David can have confidence the Messiah will come because his house has been established forever, because God has made a covenant with David and. The, the covenant we're talking about here is back in 2 Samuel 7, and we spent a lot of time on that. Now, that's really the, the key piece for the evangelical message or uh, the, the, in the Old Testament, that this is what's going to happen. This is the progression and God laying out for David how things are going to work. And despite everything that's happened since, David still believes that God's going to be true to his word. Why? Because it's dependent on God, not David. I I think what um, Heiser says, he sums it up very well. What, help me with this. What can't be gotten by moral. um,
1: Oh, what, what can't be gained by moral perfection can't be lost by moral imperfection. Mm -hmm. Is that the one you were going for?
2: That was it. I knew you'd get it. So David, David is saying it's not dependent on me. It, it, It really, it wasn't about me. It's not dependent on me. This is all, Founded and rooted in the, the nature and the character of God. And we talked a lot about how God's integrity and the security that people could have in, in God was something so counter to anything that was going on with that culture. So um, now the last line is a little awkward. It says, for he will not cause um, to prosper or will he not cause, sorry, got to get the inflection right. Will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Um, Alter translates this a little different. He says, for all my triumph and all my desire, will he not bring to bloom? A little bit more poetic. Um, Alter's a little bit more sensitive to that sort of thing. The art scroll has, for my entire salvation and desire have been fulfilled. So I think when you kind of read that and kind of see the different ways that, that the The translators have chosen to phrase this. You can kind of see that David is saying he's just the beginning. You know, his desire and everything he's done is—it's just the beginning. Um, Yeah, every battle won, every giant slayed, uh, every great feat accomplished—it is is the start. I mean, I I think that we we look at David and we think, "Oh, wow, this is so incredible!" Everything. But we we have to look at this in the the grand scheme of things. And we have to try to have, as much as human beings are capable, we have to have this kind of eternal perspective. Mm -hmm. Where, yeah, and, and, you know, honestly, that's been one of the things that's helped me out a lot in life. Is when things are, like, going wrong and falling apart, and I I can just go, you know, In twenty thousand years, no one's going to remember this, right? (laughs) No no one's going to care. I just got to get through it and get to the other side. Kind of a Um, kind of a
1: nihilistic way of looking at it. I mean,
2: well, I I don't know. For me, it's hopeful because I mean, sometimes it's like you can look at your life sometimes and, and see the chaos and everything going on around you that you can't control, and it's like. This is so huge, and it's an insurmountable battle, and I don't know how I'm going to get through it. And Mm. then it's like, in God's economy, it's nothing; it's pennies on the dollar, if that. And then you know, on the flip side, every great and wonderful thing I may ever accomplish really isn't that big of a deal, right? So it kind of helps you keep a little humble. And and I I love what we're seeing here in David's story because we're. We're seeing somebody who's matured. We're seeing somebody who, who has gone from that kid who's going to walk into Saul's courts and say, hey, I want the prize for killing the giant. I, I, I expect to get your daughter, me, a little nobody, the last born, the son who couldn't be invited to dinner when the prophet came. I want to be a part of the royal family. Mm-hmm. And he's gone from that guy with, with all that presumption and all the arrogance and uh, to saying what I'm doing doesn't even begin to match what's coming. Uh, and I, I just, I love the fact that this is our final pronouncement from David. You know, it's not a lament over his death. It's not the fact that he's going to to die and, have to give up everything he's earned it is this this assurance that everything he's worked for has a purpose and god's going to take everything he's done and he's going to multiply it Mm. and he's going to how many of us can can go okay when it's my time to go god can take everything i had and it's going to turn into something amazing that's going to impact future generations Uh, and, and there there's this really weird dichotomy in this because, on one hand, it is very humble because it's not about David. On the other hand, th- there's this confidence and this assurance that he has given God something that God can take and redeem. And he not only redeemed, but to build on. And so you've got these, the, this kind of tension at play that only makes sense when you go back to well, who is God? What's God's character? Mm-hmm. Can, can God really, will God actually um, stay true to his word? So, um, verse 6, but worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches, uh, the man who touches them arms himself with iron in the shaft of his spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Okay. Uh, David is saying worthless one not not worthless men uh first of all if you've been with us very long you went through judges with us or the first part of samuel you know that the word worthless has a specific word in hebrew Mm -hmm. i see you ready to jump in there
1: is it it the sons of blial or Bial or
2: it's just blial Okay. It, there's no sons, it's singular, it, it's the proper name, it's not ha so it's not the it's Bliol, mm. it's used as a proper name here. Um, we're going to talk some more about that later, but let's, let's kind of go with what we got and then we'll get into why that's significant when we um, talk about the chiasm a little bit more. So, David is saying that the worthless one is dangerous, he's damaging Uh, You can't touch him. He can't be taken with human hands. You can't fight him. And uh, if you did try to take him on, you're going to get hurt. So don't do it. But the one who will defeat him, the one that we're supposed to anticipate, the Messiah that we're supposed to look forward to, whenever he takes on Blial or this worthless one, he's going to do it with iron and the shaft of a spear. He's armed with the necessary weapons, in other words. Uh, he doesn't, you know, he's not someone who's fumbling. He's actually got the right equipment to do it. And uh, not only will this um, this uh, enemy be defeated, he's going to be burned with fire. And it's actually burned with fire in his place. So right there where he is, he's going to get burned up. Um, so in other words, the the thorns are kind of like what makes the ground unsuitable for human use Mm -hmm. from being worked for human hands. And it's what keeps the earth from, 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 sorry, from producing that bounty, that, that great abundance. And this is what's going to be overcome by the coming King, the guy we just talked about, who's going to bring sun and rain and make the earth fruitful again. Mm -hmm. So you have that great interplay that this, 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 um, imagery of reversal that you don't really get unless you know Genesis 3. Right. And so, I, I, I really love that, that image because the, the, the one who makes the ground have thorns is going to be burned like a thorn. But let's, let's build our case for that. Um, okay, so, there's, we're going to go back now and we're going to look kind of a little deeper into the psalm. Because uh, there's a lot packed into it. Uh, there's a lot of illusions. There's a lot of pieces on the board, and so we're going to look at the pieces, and then we're going to try to put them together. Um, I I love doing this, and I hate doing this because I feel like I, I lose people. But at the same time, I know um, if you don't see each individual piece, you won't appreciate the whole picture. Mm-hmm. So let's you know, So we've already talked about the the translation. I don't know why. I I don't know why translators have such a hard time treating this as a name. Um, It's the ESV adds men here because they think that makes it make more sense. They, they do believe that we is an idiom um, that it's not really a name. And, you know, typically when we do encounter it, it is in that, that phrase sensibly all. And, but The fact that in this verse specifically, it it is not used in the phrase, it is just the name, um, makes me pause. And I I spend a little time looking this up. Uh, So, you know, one of the ways you try to understand words is through etymology. Uh, I recently heard etymology being um, trashed by a popular uh, podcaster and YouTube um, preacher, Etymology is a valid way to try to understand words. Mm-hmm. Now, it needs to be done with care and caution because words change over time.
1: And, and That's, preferably in the original language, right? Y-
2: yes, yes. And so, don't throw out that tool. Uh, people who a lot of times say, oh, well, you can't use etymology, are actually saying, I don't like what it means when I look at the etymology, so we're going to bypass it. hmm and so, when you bypass how the Bible uses a word and you bypass the etymology that has been established by the Bible, uh, you actually aren't thinking biblically about these examples at all. So, don't fall for that trap, but again, use caution. It's not, it, it's not a hammer that you can use on every word, okay? Let's, let's be clear about that. Uh, but what I do like about the etymology is sometimes it really does open up some doors. Now, a lot of people think that, or the, the rabbis actually believe that it might be a contraction of two words. Uh, so, it'd be belo ol, beli, sorry, beli ol. Sometimes my vowel pointing when I write isn't great, uh, but it means without a yoke. And uh, what it's referring to here is the yoke of heaven is how the rabbis put it. And therefore, you're worthless, and that's why the word is translated as worthless. Now, um, when you're without the yoke of heaven or without the yoke of God, which is specifically the Torah, and not obeying God's voice, then how do you have worth? That's a really good question. So, that's where they think that's one of the more popular um, ideas of where this word received its meaning. So. But then the Dictionary of Deities and Demons, uh, great resource. If you want to buy it, uh, get ready to shell out some bucks. But the good news is it is online for free in PDF form. And uh, so anybody can use it. And there is so much in there that you would even think about including under these t- categories of deities and demons. But, um, and
1: don't let the title uh, steer you away. <laughs> It's not like a mystical book on how to contact them. It's literally right. a dictionary of deities and demons listed that at, appear in that the that Bible, appear in the biblical text, <laughs> and, and, and how they've been translated and, and how they've been perceived throughout the years. So, yeah, don't it, it's a scholarly work. It's just the title might, <laughs> might make right. some of our <laughs> Southern Baptist friends get a little iffy.
2: Yeah, it, it, it's, it, yeah, exactly. So, but I want to read what they have um, written about um, Leal in their uh, entry. Uh, so they says, Leal is, a very, well, is very well attested to in the Hebrew text from the Qumran, especially in the War, War Scroll and the Thanksgiving Scroll. They describe an ongoing battle between good and evil on the human plane. The teacher of righteousness represents the forces of light and good, while his opponent, the wicked priest, represents the forces of darkness and evil. The same struggle is depicted mythically as a battle between the angel Michael and Bliol. The present age is the time of Blyal's rule. Now, does that sound familiar? Um, we can talk about Satan being the, world, uh, the god of this world mm-hmm. and Jesus and Paul, how they refer to ta- Satan in their writings or in their teachings. Mm-hmm. Uh so the present age is the time of Blial's rule. He is the leader of the people of the Lot of Blial, who are opposed who are opposed by the people of the Lot of God. In this literature too, Blial leads the forces of darkness and malevolence. According to one Qumran text, the coming of Lial would not be permanent. After a momentous struggle, God would eventually bring about the permanent annihilation of Blial and all the forces of evil, both human and angelic. So I'm not alone in thinking that Bliol should be treated as a proper name. Um, We obviously, if we've got it in Qumran, for some people who might not know that name, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's more popular usage, they treated it as a proper name. And really, this psalm strengthens my opinion on that. And so, we're going to kind of look at how I read the psalm. If you don't like it, you know, you don't have to accept it. You know, there's, there's lots of other opinions but it says you know basically we can look at um, something that we all agree on every commentator does believe this is a messianic psalm uh, David is not extolling his virtuous king we went over that and that he is speaking as a prophet who is anticipating the arrival of the Messiah and this is also the, the final piece of that chiasm in 2 Samuel those last four chapters and it's central to uh, it's the central element. It, it's that, that, that primary point of the chiasm, which is all about the nature and the purpose of the kingship, which has been the theme of all of Samuel, but this is kind of a way of summarizing it and bringing it all together. So from Hannah's prophecy in 1 Samuel 2, where she announces the coming of the, God's anointed, the Messiah, to the king who is a king like other nations in Saul, now we have David, God's anointed, who's going to foreshadow. Uh, the coming Messiah, we see how the book has explored the promise and the problems of a kingship over Israel. And, you know, I don't think you could get away from the idea that there are problems even in the midst of a promise. But in David's reign, when we go from the, the horrible corruption of Shiloh under Eli's uh, administration to, to Saul, and now we get to David, now the promise becomes the focus. And that's the thing, that everything that came before David wasn't focused on the promise of the the final Messiah. Everything was focused on the issues and the problems of what happens when people are not listening to God, when they're trying to do what's right in their own eyes. And now David points us ahead and doesn't keep us wrapped up and the corruption of the, this moment. Now, Brueggemann says it this way, says the Davidic house is not a tenuous historical institution, but an ontological structure based in God's decree. The same language is in the Royal Psalm 89, uh, verses 28 through 37. The same language of promise, moreover, is used as a guarantee to the world after the flood, Genesis 9:16. The exilic prophet Uh, poetry motifs, there is a convergence of motifs of David's promise, flood, the promise, uh, David's promise, the flood promise, and the guarantee of creation. And he finds that in Isaiah 54, 9 through 10, and 55, 33. Uh, Sorry, just three. I wrote the wrong number down. All of which are a way of witnessing God's long-term fidelity. So again, we're going back to the character and the nature of God. I, if I could get people excited about one thing in the Bible, it is God's character, his nature, um, the way that we can depend on him, that he is unchanging. We need to understand how big that is. That, that is so important. And this is why there is this continuity from Genesis to Revelation. If God had been a God who changed with the the barometric pressure, you wouldn't have that continuity over the the thousands of years it took to put this book together that serves as a witness to how he deals with humanity. And this is why we can actually read these books and say, I can be encouraged, I can find hope, because if he didn't change over all this millennia, then he's not going to change now. Because the amount of time that's passed from the, the close of the canon until now is nothing compared to the amount of time that it took to actually compile the book. So I I, I think we forget or that God's character is, is a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't think we talk about it enough.
1: Yeah, well, and that's actually a really interesting point that you make, that God's character's been the same during the whole time the book's being compiled, because that is one of the criticisms of the Bible, is that it's this collection of books that's separated from, you know, from author from author by you know hundreds of years, and mm-hmm. it's like, well, but the, uh, the observations are still the same, and uh, the, the people who were writing it were able to see where God's hand was moving and, and, uh, and see that it's good. Um mm-hmm. and what's and it's interesting and I for some reason it reminds me of this so I'm just going to throw this out I was listening to <laughs> um oh what's his name
2: never will forget yeah, it yeah
1: it, it was either it's either Harris or Dawkins was uh, on unbelievable okay uh, this should be good uh, yeah uh, so <laughs> the the debate was
0: can you get um can you get morality from the biblical text and
1: it was. I mean, it was an interesting debate, but I was. I was actually mm-hmm. kind of disappointed by it because the the one of. I'm trying to remember exactly de- the details, but <laughs> what Dawkins kept coming back to was the fact that there were um, atrocities committed in the name of Christ and in the name of mm-hmm. Yahweh, and using the mm-hmm. biblical text to justify certain things. But the, the other side, the debater from the other side was, was saying, but you, you have to understand, where we arrived today, we did get to from rabbis and Christians combing mm-hmm. through the text mm-hmm. and learning how to apply them correctly. Mm-hmm. And I was very frustrated because, and, and, and kind of underwhelmed with Dawkins' argument, uh, which surprised me, but his argument <laughs> basically amounted to there are people who crash cars, therefore, no one can use a car to get where they're going. Right. I mean, it, it, the same logic applied. And mm-hmm. that, you know, there are people who will abuse the biblical text and people who will see that God is not good uh, because of their perspective, or they'll think that God is not good because of their perspective. Mm-hmm. But if you actually take the time to utilize the scriptures and natural revelation correctly, then you do see mm-hmm. that God is good. and that, and. that and so, and being like you said, that it's seen time and time again over the ages, it's a, it's a long-standing testimony and a character witness. So, that's, that, that's really cool.
2: I, you know, and I don't think I realized how deep and how significant it was to the biblical text until we started going through these studies, because before this, you know, it's like, I had a mental assent to the idea that God is unchanging. I mean, the Bible says it, so you know, of course, you know, let's let's believe it, right? Sure. Um, and and I don't think there's anything wrong with going. Okay, this is what the Bible says, and I believe it. But then there's times that when you get to studying something that you've just given a mental assent to, that just accepting that somewhere out there in the ether it is true um, becomes real. And, and I think that's kind of what the study has done for me. It's, yeah, I I believed it, but now it's very real. And so I'm seeing, because it's real and it's not an abstraction, I'm seeing how important it is. It's not something that we should neglect. Uh, We need to be bringing this message of hope and security and stability. I mean, come on, we live in a chaotic world, we live in a time where people are scared to leave their houses because a disease might kill them if they talk to the wrong person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. And I'm not trying to get political or, or make any kind of social commentary beyond the fact that there's a lot of uncertainty. And I don't care who you are. If you are not uncertain about something, uh, you're either superhuman or you just have no emotional capacity for emotion. I, I, I don't know. Pick one. But we, most of us, we need to know that what we're doing, number one, that we can do so with confidence because we serve a God who isn't going to suddenly pull the rug out from under us. We, we also need to know that what we're doing is part of a greater plan and how we participate in that. I think we should be striving to do the best we can, the, the deepest, greatest works we can, Not to earn his love, but out of honor for the fact that we've been invited to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you you don't get invited to, you know, dinner with the queen and show up in your pajamas. That that's just rude. That's disrespectful. And so we want to do something, we want to live in such a way that we demonstrate not just to God that we value and appreciate to him, but to show the world that we have a true devotion and desire to honor God because that's how he's how much he's inspired us and you know I probably sound like a broken record but where we get that inspiration to live that way is by being in his word by seeing the witness by hearing the testimonies by knowing that this is truth and always has been truth and always will be truth and if it was true for David if it was true for Hannah you know, anyone in between Genesis and Revelation, if it was true for them, it's true for us. Mm-hmm. And that really is the good news, that we have a God that we can rely on and depend on. And what is he doing out of that is he's, he's getting to us. You know, whether it's breaking through and tilting the heavens like we saw in, in uh, Samuel 22, or we're seeing Jesus come to earth in the, in the body of a man and actually living among us, tabernacling with us as John with uh, the gospel of John says, or we're looking at the ways that providentially he's showing up in our world, or maybe even supernaturally today showing up in our world. I don't discount that. So you know, the, the whole point, the whole point of all of this is getting to us and creating that sacred space where we can be together because he doesn't want us under the rule and under the dominion of something that's worthless. And so, how many of us can look at our lives and go, I can see where this area of my life, whether in totality or maybe in bits and pieces, is actually being submitted to something that is worthless, mm-hmm. whether we're talking an abstract concept or a real entity. So, um, we'll get into some more of this because I, I've got some more writing, but I am see that I'm going to be going over time if I keep going because, th- like I said, a lot in this psalm and it's mm-hmm. just seven chapters, seven verses. Right. <laughs> so, I'll feel like chapters by the time I'm done.
1: <laughs> anyway, oh, you know, it's good to have goals,
2: <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, that being said, everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we've we've been in, having a good time uh, doing this. We're about to get into another book, uh, which is crazy. Um, <laughs> we uh, I think I mentioned this before, but February 2020 is when we started First Samuel. So we have been in here for a little while. We're going to transition into Kings uh, the next couple mm-hmm. weeks. Um. One thing I did want to make mention of, uh, I know at the beginning of like all the crazy pandemic stuff, we kind of stopped pushing our Patreon because we, you know, wanted to make sure that Mm -hmm. we weren't acting like we we didn't want to seem greedy, like, you know, (laughs) while people are are struggling. And I realize there are still struggles going on in the world, but uh, Emily and I have started uh, up again trying to post those bonus episodes. So if you head over there, I don't remember exactly what the price points are, but I know you get the bonus episodes at a very inexpensive price point. Um, there is some merchandise that you can receive by supporting us at the higher levels. Um, you know, t-shirts, uh, coffee mugs, different things like that. And I've been looking at some new merchandise to, to throw in there just to, to kind of sweeten the deal. Um, (laughs) but, uh, if you do like the show, um, I would encourage you to go check that out. See if that's something you want to do. Uh, we ask, you know, if you're in need, uh, don't, uh, don't starve. Over- don't starve <laughs> yeah. yourself to support us. The, uh, we're going to be doing this either way. Um, and we're also not going to say, Hey, if you're, if you send money to us, God's going to bless you for that. Cause we're not <laughs> the kind of radio preachers who want to, we don't want to pray on anyone. We, we definitely, uh,
2: we will pray for we you, will, not we, pray on yeah, you.
1: <laughs> we, we will, yeah, we will pray for you, and and uh, and we do appreciate any support, but we're not going to attach any kind of promise to that money that dot that God didn't directly give to anyone. So <laughs> and we're not going to claim he did if he didn't. Does that does that seem like a good number of uh caveats there? To make sure <laughs> yeah. that we know that. Send um,
2: us money. You might not get anything in return for it. Um,
1: except, except for the things listed in the Patreon perks uh, levels. But um, that being said, you know, it does kind of offset our hosting cost and some of the equipment upgrades that we do from time to time. And the books. And, and the books. Um, that is quite the large purchase whenever you get into the, the academic level stuff, as some of you may know. Um, anyway, that being said, thank you to all those who are supporting and all those who are listening, if you don't want to give cash, which, you know, I I get it. I listen to a I lot of people do. I don't <laughs> give cash to as well, and I appreciate what they do. Um, but if you do want to support us but don't want to give us money, write us a review, share us with a friend, or uh, just hit the subscribe button so you know when the next episodes are coming out. Um, Absolutely. Those things help us probably more than, than the direct cash payments. So... I appreciate it. And uh, we'll see everyone next time. Bye.
2: Bye.
0: You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.